Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers, episode three, Two Roads Diverged in a Wolf's Wood. Uh, we've got uh, the usual sp- suspects here tonight, Scott, myself, uh, we have Brooke, and we have Matt with us as well, as hey. usual. And we'll be covering uh, this week, we'll be covering John's second chapter, Danny's second chapter, Eddard's second chapter, Tyrion's second chapter, Catelyn's third chapter, and then at the end, if we've got some time, we'll get into some... Davos After Dark to uh, spoil some things for those that want to stick around. And uh, so what we'll be doing is our normal format. We'll be covering the summaries the summaries of chapters very briefly uh, at, the, at the top, and then uh, we'll dive into some analysis of that chapter, some, some fun discussion points, uh, and then we'll uh, move on to the next chapter and do the same until we get, uh, get through the end. So I uh, wanted to take an opportunity really quick just to uh, to allow you to, to encourage you to, to contact us, to provide feedback or ask us questions, encourage us to discuss any any given topics that, that you have interest in that maybe you'd like to hear us talk about. Um, you can reach out to us through our, our Tumblr uh, site, davosfingers.tumblr.com. You can email us at wearedavosfingers at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at davosfingers. And uh, also want to remind people, uh, this may be your first your first listen. Uh, this is a spoiler-free show, so we will try to keep everything uh, spoilerific away until we get to the uh, the end segment called Davos After Dark. So uh, hopefully, we won't be spoiling anything for anybody. So keep it open that way. And uh, I think we wanted to start uh, tonight off actually with a piece of news that Matt read regarding the Song of Ice and Fire series. Uh, Matt, go ahead. <laughs> so get this the office for national St- statistics named the most popular baby names in the uk for 2013 you ready for this i don't know there were 187 baby girls named aria last year wow another 50 named khaleesi wow yes yeah, i kid you oh. not Seven boys named Bran and <laughs> only seven, only seven, huh. and uh, uh, and three get this three Sandors. Wow, as in Sandor <laughs> Clegane. Tyrion didn't make the cut. What's the deal? Uh, not that I've got here. Wow, so, I just thought that was a lot of fun. Well, so. I I was uh, I think we mentioned this before, but. Had we we just recently had a, a baby boy brought into our family, but uh, had had it been a girl, I was pushing the wife for Arya really hard, and she was oh. not having it. But uh, what I love the name. That's that's it. Really groundbreaking stuff that uh, is really worthy of our attention. So absolutely, totally worthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, love that Khaleesi is going to be like. <laughs> Oh, don't uh, worry. My my diner server's name in twenty years. In 20 oh, years. I love it. And wow. don't worry, that's the Brooke, same number of people really who pigeonhole are pigeonhole the audience of these books. <laughs> <laughs> don't it's worry, guys. No that was the same number of people named Peggy last year. Wow. Just so you know. They okay. Fifty Peggies, fifty Khaleesi's. Couldn't have just gone with Danny, I guess. No. Oh. Or Peggy. So uh, let's go ahead and just uh, get get kicked off then with uh, John's second chapter. Uh, Brooke, I think you're going to be taking us through this one. Yes. So this chapter is dedicated to John's farewells as um, he takes the fork north in the Wolfswood. A little allude to our episode title. Please, everybody, make note of how clever Scott is. 
I'm dying to know how clever I am. Um, he is joining the Night's Watch up on the wall that divides the North from the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, the, sorry, the Wilds from the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, he is headed up there with his uncle, who is a sort of a high officer within the uh, Night's Watch. And yeah, he's got to say goodbye to all of his family, some who are staying in Winterfell and some who are headed south with Ned uh, while he takes over the possession of uh, the position of the King's Hand. So again, this chapter dedicated to John just saying goodbye to some people. Uh, one farewell goes really well. One is kind of like emotionally stunted and one goes not so great at all. One might even say it goes life-changingly traumatic. Basically, two weeks have passed since Jamie Lannister tossed Bran from the tower uh, at Winterfell. And Jon Snow has not been able to visit his brother at his bedside, where his brother lies unconscious, even once, because Catelyn, Bran's mother, and of absolutely no relation to Jon, as we were reminded on a page-by-page basis, hasn't actually left <laughs> Bran's bedside. So Jon Kent has not felt comfortable going to visit Bran. That's how um, just terrible his relationship is with Catelyn. So he's about to leave. He finally bucks up his courage. And when he does finally go up to say goodbye to Bran, him and Catelyn get into it a bit. Uh, she doesn't want him in the room at all. Just kind of drags him on her emotional roller coaster and takes them both off the rails at one point by declaring that it should have been Jon instead of Bran who should be in the bed dying, uh, be in the bed beside her dying. So Jon, to his credit, doesn't like omg at her or anything he just kind of turns and leaves because the maturity of this kid is staggering <laughs> and uh he's off to his next farewell um he finds his half-brother rob in the courtyard uh rob is encouraging him to get going because his uncle is waiting and uh everybody wants to be off had wanted to be off hours ago and they do a little back slappy goodbye by stark by snow they bite they call each other by their last names. It's super, again, stunted, but uh, no hard feelings. And obviously they have a strong sort of bro or bra, B-R-U-H kind of relationship. Last person that Rob wants to say goodbye to is his half-sister, Arya, uh, of, of the great namesake. Uh, he ends up giving her, <laughs> gifting her before he leaves um, with a sword. Um, it's a small sword built for um like a rapier than a like a big like machete sword. type sword yeah. yeah this is how it's been described to us so perfect for a young girl who's just training up they have a a cute little farewell and before he leaves he asks um she asks him what the name of the sword is and he tells her needle and she asks why, and it's because it could be for her sewing or, or needlework, which is an allude to past chapters where she has not found a lot of talent in needlework, but would really love to train with a sword. So it's super cute, it's super endearing, and it really shows how strong their relationship is. And it kind of leaves you on a high note, especially after Catelyn just totally brought him down with the, hey, it should be you dying, not my son here. So 
that's really great and really promising for John. And off he goes to the wall. And that is the John chapter. Yeah, lots to talk about in this chapter. It's uh, it's one of the we've 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 talked before about, you know, how George has different kinds of chapters that 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 accomplish different things. This is all pretty much a character building chapter. You don't you don't learn a ton about the histories or, or you know the the you know the the world itself, but you learn a lot about the relationships, uh, that that John has with with his his family. Uh, interesting to note too, uh. We don't we don't get goodbyes to Sansa or Rickon. Don't know what well, no. maybe, maybe it's not interesting. I don't know. <laughs> I find it interesting, <laughs> um, but uh, I I think maybe we should focus first on Catelyn and that whole situation. How horrible she is to John. Oh my gosh, what a witch, man! I mean, the kind of behavior that <laughs> as a reader it's difficult to forgive. I think you know, and and she's in a very difficult spot. Having you know, she's been sitting with Bran by his bedside, but she's really kind of. It seems like she's. She's just taking it out on John with this crazy shit. I mean, it should have been you in the bed. What does that even mean? I don't climb towers. Like, I don't... (laughs) Yeah, it was totally unnecessary. Like, totally unnecessary. Obviously, two weeks of grief have really, like, uh, magnified her resentments, whether rational or irrational for John, and it just all kind of exploded. And again, like, I have to give so much credit to him for not like rising to it because I totally would have I'm heading up to the wall this is my my last chance to give her to the uh the old witch but uh he didn't he just yeah. and it's like what has he ever done to her besides be yeah. born like <laughs> yeah you you <laughs> how uh... dare he yeah <laughs> how dare he you, you know Catelyn's so put together all the time and that's why this chapter was so interesting uh she's always so you know this is the same woman that deciphered that note from Liza Aaron, right? She she can she's smarter than this, basically. Uh, she's better than this, and so we're starting to see this other side of Cat, which is which is a fascinating part of the story, and I think our maybe our first real introduction into George R. R. Martin's flawed characters, and not so much flawed, but just human characters. I think we'd call them. This is one of the best examples we've gotten so far of someone who, yeah, is really put together, but boy, you do something to her kids and it's going to mess with her a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I can't help but think if she would have just, and I can't put myself in her shoes, but if she would have maybe just kept herself busy uh, or at least tried to instead of just sitting by his bedside for two whole weeks, uh, she might have been a little bit calmer, but I don't know. I've never had a kid fall out of a window. No, not a kid, but uh, you've certainly experienced some things, uh, <laughs> even somewhat recently, that have... Uh, you know, cause you to have to focus on, you know, on, on day-to-day stuff while, while dealing with some, you know, some, some things in your life. And I think you're right. Uh, if you shut everything out, but this one thing, you're not going to cope very well. And, uh, I think Brooke, you said it well too, that it's, uh, I think you said magnifies, uh, it just makes stronger these things that she's already feeling. And I want to go into that a little bit. I mean, it's 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 for anyone looking on it seems so irrational you know but but it's a, a pretty common thing for people to be able to in, to, to be in, unable to separate people from from infractions right you know you associate mm. somebody with something and then forever you just you you cannot get over that that boundary and mm. for for John you know Catelyn associates him with this affair on Ned's side right and he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he wasn't involved, 
right? And yet he's suffering all this punishment and blame from her that she because she can't pull that out and say, you know what, I hate I hate this situation, but he's not the one that caused it, right? Right. And you see that in the real world with uh, uh, the the worst case that I that I that I remember reading about was like women that have been raped, right? And they they get pregnant from that rape, and they have this child that they associate with that event. And that one's obviously much more strong, um, you know, when they, they have a lot of real trouble, you know, distancing the event from this child that had nothing to do with the event, right? And, uh, you know, that's just, uh, again, getting back to the, the realism of, of George and his characters and how human they are. I think this is kind of an example of that. Holy crap, this just got political. Damn, scatty. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, I'm impressed. It is, it is extreme and and he isn't afraid to go there and he never lets up he never because obviously as a reader we sympathize with john in this case because he has the rational hand in this game with catelyn and he never eases up she stays crazy right to the right to the last time she sees him walking out the door which is impressive and has to be hard for him too to give a character he obviously reveres because he's endowed her with so many strong qualities and like keep her being so crazy. I hate, I hate keeping <laughs> to keep um, distilling it down to that word, but really that's what she's being. You're analyzing it much, much better. Scat. <laughs> she's crazy. <laughs> Yeah. Acting crazy. No, yeah, but, she is. Uh, yeah. Um, he he really just takes it all the way and and they don't have to reconcile because yeah, he's not afraid to uh leave these loose ends. It's good. It's it makes for um more interesting reading for sure. Do you think we would feel differently about Catelyn if this chapter was from her point of view instead of John's? Uh Probably not a lot, but I don't know. Just don't something think, to think I don't about. I think so. I've been thinking a lot lately about how the point of views of the different characters influence the way that we feel about them and about the situations. And I wonder how we'd feel if this was all coming from Catelyn. I certainly don't think I'd like her, but... Well, the only real rumination Catelyn has given us from her point of view about John is her regret that he resembles um, Ned so much. That he is like a daily reminder. We never really mm-hmm. get internal monologue about her being like, oh, John, John, I wish he'd die. I wish he'd you know, fall off a roof, blah, blah, blah. Um, it's it's always from someone else's point of view that we get her vitriol. The, again, the only point of view we've had from her, I believe, is in the Godswood, uh, her first chapter, where she just regrets that... Uh, well, she she does question his heritage, but mostly she just regrets that he is such a, a living reminder. Yeah. Interesting. I, I don't know that there's there's much room for a different interpretation, given that, yeah, I mean, if, you, if you're talking about rumination, perhaps she could lend some uh, historical, you know, what it reminds her of when he walks in the room or, or something like that. We might feel a little bit for her, but the things she says... Right, they're pretty inexcusable, regardless of whose POV is it's coming from. Oh, and yeah, and and regardless of POV, the the things that come out of their mouths are going to be the same. Yes, uh, right. it's it's more of 
getting that background thought. I'm not defending her by any stretch of the imagination. I just Good think it's Matt. interesting to no. think about how that how that uh, that point Good. of view idea works throughout the book. Because if you You're... defend someone that's attacking John, Brooke is liable to stomp off. That's right. I'm just going to throw my headset down, <laughs> flip this table, and take off. But no, like to to your question, um, now this is like opening up my eyes too he really is manipulating us with these various points of conflict and from whose perspective we see the map because you're totally right, right. He, he is playing us matt oh good discovery man yeah it's yeah, crazy huh yeah we'll talk more about it uh when we get to to danny's chapter two yes mm-hmm. yeah can you imagine that scene from uh drogo's perspective <laughs> anyway we'll get to that actually uh, yeah i can walk into any nightclub right now <laughs> okay go <laughs> well uh, we're i, w- I want to get to the other the other two main exchanges that happen here um i think john and rob's could be short i mean you know they're brothers they're close but i think brooke, brooke mentioned in her summary that it's a strangely formal departure right uh you know a little hug a little using the last names you know, John lies to Rob in his last encounter, saying that you know the exchange with Caitlin was was good. You know, we see incredibly emotional responses from from John with Bran. Uh, you know, saying he's got to wake up and and all that, and 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 with Arya uh, later in the chapter. And this is very cold, and yet you're I, I at least figure them to be the closest uh, of his siblings uh, in 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 the lead up to this chapter. Did you guys just... see? Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say I disagree with you, Scad. You make it so difficult sometimes. I do, I really do. In which way? <laughs> I I just think that it's kind of that, uh, as Brooke called it, the bruh mentality. They're, I think they're more buddies than they are friends. Or, excuse me, buddies than they are brothers. And I think that maybe comes from just their closeness in age. But, you know, you, at least for me, I, I talk to my friends differently than I talk to my little brothers and sisters and I always have even through high school and all of that and uh, you're kind of a little bit more broy with them dude everything's cool no worries you know in regards to Catlin and and you know you call your friends by their last name sometimes I still call one of my friends Miller instead of by his first name uh, I just think it's kind of just a different relationship more of a, a friend buddy relationship than a brother relationship I didn't find it too formal or cold. Just found it different. I would not have used cold, but definitely formal. And I don't know. I'm I'm leaving. You know, I, I guess he doesn't think that he's never going to see him again because they do talk about the next time that he'll see him, but not right. going to see him for a long time. And it's, you know. I do think it's interesting the using the last names uh, and what they imply. Yeah. Snow meaning bastard and Stark meaning, you know, top dog in the north. I don't think they meant that in that way, but... You know, it sends a message. Yeah. I thought it was really telling of the relationship that when Rob asked about how it went up in Bran's room with Catelyn, uh, John said it was fine. Mm-hmm. Didn't didn't allude to the fact that Catelyn had been just so terrible to him. In fact, that, that whole exchange kind of reminds me of um, the first Captain America movie, which I loved. Did, have you guys seen The Winter Soldier yet? No, that was the second one. I know, I know, but I'm oh. just no, to- totally I take- yeah, I'm totally uh, um, sidebarring here. But 
excellent movie. In the first Captain America, though, uh, Steve Rogers and Bucky end up departing in the same way that Rob and John have kind of a backslap, hey, take it easy. One is going off to war, one is being left behind in New York. But then the whole plot of the next two movies is just about how much they love each other and how right. far they'd be willing to go to save slash avenge each other. So I don't think that they need to be um, super open with their affection to each other. They, they know deep inside that yeah, they, would, they per- would sacrifice a lot. Perfectly articulated. Perfectly. I think with, with, with a lot of time, guys are kind of that way. They leave some a lot of things unspoken. Ooh, deep mm. down, they're feeling it. <laughs> not everyone, not every dude expresses themselves as well as you two do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. If you only knew. Well, I had, I had one of those moments when I said goodbye to my best friend in high school. Uh, one of our, a girl who was also a very good friend of ours was in the backseat when I dropped him off for like, you know, the last time or whatever, when we were both going to go our separate ways for college. And uh, we had very much one of these moments. So I definitely know uh, what you're talking about. Aw, that's really cute. It was adorable. Our friend in the backseat started crying. Oh! Can't you go get... She said, I I believe her exact words were, can't you go give him a hug? Or something. (laughs) And I'm like, and I just shook my head. I'm like, no, it's not that way or something. So, yeah, but don't worry. But you know, there were teardrops on his guitar when he got home that night. He's a reason for the teardrops on my guitar. <laughs> but, but he was not my brother, and so that's why I draw the distinction here. Yeah, I don't know if it's the closeness in age that it seems like more of a buddy relationship than a brother relationship, or yeah. what. But because they are, you know, the same age, pretty much. Well, I want to move on from this, but I, I do want to just yep. before we move on from the discussion with Rob, I want to just drop in an observation I had. Uh, one of the lines, I just think it's brilliant writing from George. Rob says to John, the next time I see you, you'll be in black. And John just replies, it was always my color. Which is, you know, it could be, you know, as Brooke said last week, her wardrobe was mostly black. It could just be a comment like that, right? Like, oh, I always liked black, you know? But uh, it also could be something, you know, just much heavier, like, I was destined to do this, right? It was always... The black was always for me, right? That this was always where I was going to end up because I'm a bastard or because, you know, I don't know. But uh, I just, I think it's a brilliant piece of writing that I wanted to highlight. Mm-hmm. It is good. Uh, so the the last goodbye is, is with Arya. It just highlights their relationship. And I don't know where their relationship comes from. I, I think they're both kind of outcasts. We talked about this a little bit in Arya's last chapter. But uh, they're united a little bit uh, in some things that they they have in common. You want to talk a little bit about that, Brooke? Yeah. So I, I think I, I went on ad nauseum in the last time, but both outcasts, both um, look like Starks. Um, Arya has always felt like John is her full blood brother and has treated him thusly. Um, so that probably solidified their relationship. Whatever the case, it, it didn't feel like, they were desperate to see each other again in the future. It felt like a, a good, strong goodbye. Um, like they both had faith that the other one would survive and do well in their respective adventures. And uh, yeah, it's just a, just a happy little piece of writing. Arya gets her sword, um, kind of feels like 
the beginning of a path that is going to be really interesting to watch her walk. Um, whether you know what's going to happen or not, she is an interesting character who gets a point of view and, um, yeah, strong, a strong woman character. So, yeah, uh, I like too that he gives her, he gives her the sword, uh, almost like a, like a last encouragement, like, don't forget who you are, you know, like, yeah, you're Mm -hmm. leaving here. You're going to go to court with all these fancy pants people and they're going to try to make you be whatever. But here's this friggin' sword and you go figure out how to use it and you be yourself. And it's just kind of like a little encouragement from from Brother John to, you know, to be who she is. I like that. Mm-hmm. For a guy who's already, as you just pointed out, his conversation with Rob, he's accepted who he is kind of destined to be which may not be exactly what he wants to be, but he, you know, he feels like because of his station in life that that's where he's going no matter what. Uh, it's encouraging and, and kind of cute and, and heartwarming is the word I'm looking for to see him encouraging someone like Arya who's got her whole future ahead of her, uh, you know, to, to go off and do what she actually wants rather than what she feels like she has to do like he's doing with the wall. Yeah. Oh, good way to sum it up. There we go. Don't ask me to speak next time. Just ask Matt to explain it. <laughs> oh, you guys have done great. So we'll, we'll, we'll move on to Danny in a second. But uh, again, just a, a great a great kind of ending about uh, when, when John says to, to Arya about the two roads, uh, different roads leading to the same castle. They're going different directions physically, um, maybe emotionally. And, and this is a nice line that George has thrown in. Sometimes writers throw these things in and they don't mean anything by them, but sometimes they throw them in as a a hint of things to come, right? Like, oh, maybe they're going to end up being in more similar circumstances than you think, right? Even though they're they're departing and heading in different directions now. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to throw that in as a possible teaser. Who knows? I like it. All right, uh, Matt, why don't we move on to Danny's second chapter? Why don't we? So we've got Daenerys, and we uh, open the chapter on her wedding feast. She's been married at the the tender young age of 13, a fact that I try not to think about too much as I'm going through chapters like this one, that she's only 13 years old. Uh, of course, we don't know how old Khal Drogo is, right? For all, I mean, he seems older, but for all we know, he could be like 17 or 18. I don't know. Uh, so they're getting, they got married and at this point they are eating dinner and getting gifts and they're getting all sorts of cool stuff. Uh, Danny gets among other things, uh, some really cool history books about Westeros, uh, from Ser Jorah Mormont, who, uh, was a sellsword from Westeros who ended up joining up with, uh, Daenerys and Viserys and pledged his sword to protect them. And he and they get some stuff from him. She gets some new stuff from her blood riders, who are members of Khal Drogo's entourage, who are kind of going to be her primary protectors. Uh, she gets some dragon eggs or purported dragon eggs from uh, Illyrio, who talks about how you know they're petrified at this point and everything, but she's stunned by how lovely they are and and how heavy they are. I thought that was interesting that they're heavy and, and petrified, almost like rock at this point. And then her sweet, loving, tender husband gives her a beautiful horse, which she's able to hop on and ride around, and she impresses everybody. And uh, I thought it was interesting to note that after she rode the horse, we actually saw Khal Drogo smile for the first time. And that was kind of a cute moment. 
then, of course, uh, you get some uh, – the typical Dothraki wedding apparently is filled with all sorts of out there and under the sun sex and, and fighting and all sorts of great stuff going on right in front of everybody, which kind of throws her for a little bit of a loop. Uh, in fact, Illyrio states to her, a Dothraki wedding without at least three deaths is deemed a dull affair. And uh, she said that their wedding must have been especially blessed because before the day was over, a dozen men had died. So it's uh, obviously going well as far as Dothraki weddings go. The wedding uh, festivities died down. Khal Drogo and Danny ride off into the sunset for their first night together, at which we get a, a, a vivid description of their wedding night of... Um, I don't know, I guess you'd call it some some type of foreplay that's particularly one-sided that eventually does lead to sex. And that's the Danny chapter. Uh, all sorts of good stuff. And this is where I kind of get back to that POV point that I tried to make earlier uh, and how it, it influences how we see the characters. Getting it from Danny's point of view, we see her as she sees herself but it's interesting and sometimes a bit of a challenge for us to try to step outside of the pov character and see them from another perspective rather than their own if we just took danny for how she thought of herself she'd be this scared to death little girl right. uh, but if you just step outside that for a minute what does she look like i mean this girl who's <laughs> uh, getting, is she getting the wedding of her dreams? I don't think so. Um, this is going is probably the complete opposite direction of how she, she pictured her life going. And, uh, you know, what do you guys think? What would you see it from an outsider's perspective of how Danny is? I don't know whether this answers the question or not, but what you get in this chapter is all these things she's feeling. And, and so, uh, I don't know if you guys have heard the phrase, I get it all the time, because I think it's true of myself in some ways, uh, I'm my own worst critic. So mm -hmm. she's feeling all these things, and she feels terrible, and she thinks it must be showing to everybody, but everybody else probably doesn't see all that. She sounds like she's keeping composed, she's sitting there looking straight ahead, she's, you know, there, exactly. she can't yep. engage, but I, I think everybody else probably sees somebody who looks like maybe she has it together, right? Exactly, yep, that's exactly the point I'm trying to make, yep. Yeah, totally agreed. I love how uh, her brother Viserys uses their heritage as the dragon lords as sort of like um, an entitlement. He says, don't wake the dragon. Um, he thinks that he should regain the throne just by his birth alone. But she uses her heritage for strength. strength. Yeah. yeah, she says, I am the blood of the dragons, which she keeps telling herself as she's like got a rictus of a grin while people are uh, humping and dying in front of her uh, during this wedding feast, uh, which I, That's I love. That's what we should have called the episode. Humping <laughs> and dying at the wedding feast? <laughs> By the way, dream wedding. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. But uh, I, think, I think it's... Uh, uh, lends her a lot of substance. Um, she's not expecting anything. She has to find all of her strength from within, and she does. And even though she is a young girl and 
hasn't had a lot of great influences in her life. But um, I just want to get back to Matt's comment at the end of his chapter description of one-sided foreplay. <laughs> I don't think that's what that was. <laughs> I think Hal Drogo, <laughs> at least from Danny's perspective. That was a rather crass way of putting it. Yeah, that was a rather... <laughs> Well, it might just be an observation, but it's completely incorrect. So let me correct you. Educate us, Brooke. What's incorrect? Cal Drogo obviously is quite sensitive um, in his own way. He is the product of his upbringing, just as so many characters in this series are. And uh, you you have to kind of excuse his... uh, I'm making air quotes here, barbaric ways. But when it comes to deflowering his new wife, he does it right. Yeah. It's all warmed up. I and, totally uh, agree. Yeah. I completely and, agree. I mean, uh, it wasn't like he was looking for reciprocation. He was completely focused in on making sure it was a good experience for her, which was completely unexpected. And I think for a lot of readers has probably endeared him to them. And certainly um, I don't want to dive into the TV show, but they did a great job with his character there and uh, making him a very attractive savage. Mm. Whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Is Brooke saying something positive about the TV series? It's happening. Only, only because I was a big Stargate Atlantis fan, like big enough to attend the San Diego Comic Con just for the Stargate Atlantis panel back oh, in the day. Yeah. Wow. So <laughs> this is kind of like a holdover. You know, Cal Drogo's no question. He was saying no throughout the night and his final no, which was posed in the form of a question, actually elicited an Ah, from me. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so he's, he's, I, I was, he's this I was big, being strong guy in yeah. control of all these people, and you know, in command of his faculties and everything. And he's un, he's in, in confident, unconfident enough that he's not sure of himself after warming up, you know, revving up the oven for hours. You know, he's not sure of himself whether he's done a good enough job, and he's 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 sensitive and asking, right? I think yeah. that, I thought that was very was, sensitive of him, and I thought that was very though, selfless of him. Mm-hmm. So the lines of consent were blurred from like the moment she was sold into this marriage, right up until he rode off with her into yes. a deserted field to do the deed. But he brought it back around by making sure she was good. Well, it showed too. Totally did some forethought. I think. I think what the, what this whole scene means is that he looked at it from her perspective. He looked at it and said, she probably thinks this is fucking crazy. She's being sold to me. There's no rules. She doesn't know what I'm going to do. Like, she's got to be really insecure right now. And he took the time to look at it from her perspective, treat her this way in order to get over that hump. And, you know, so that she can see that, you know, what his intentions are and what kind of person he really is and how this is going to be. And, you know, you're not a rape post, Um, you know. Like hate post Jesus. Sorry. <laughs> Brooke is just appalled by that, Scott and I right now. <laughs> but I but I, I have to uh I have to say I, I was I to, I think Matt was saying, you know, that maybe it was Brooke. I don't know. One one of you said that this took a lot of readers by surprise. And it definitely took me by surprise. I was not yeah. ready for this to, to, to come out the way it did. And 
I was happy for I was happy for both of them because they've both taken this extremely kind of awkward situation and made what appears to be the beginnings of a healthy relationship. Right? Was One of consent it was a beautiful moment. Yeah. I, we got little clues of Cal Drogo throughout the chapter, and I really liked them. Uh, I really liked the part about him smiling after she mm, rode the yeah. horse around. Um, you know, at first, you know, he gives her this beautiful horse, and you might think to yourself, why is he giving her this beautiful horse? Well, it could just be because he's the call. It's like, it's like when the famous basketball player decks his wife out and all the beautiful stuff and allows her to go shopping and, and buys her a big, nice car and all of that because she's his wife and so she needs to look good too. So on the surface, you might think that's what Khal Drogo's doing. He wants his wife to look good, so he gives her a beautiful horse. But the fact that you know she rode around and, and jumped over the fire and everything and it elicited a little smile to him, I don't know, but to me that makes me think that he wants Danny to enjoy a certain amount of freedom and and he cares about kind of her well-being and stuff and, and kind of wants her to still maintain a sense of herself. And then, you know, the no question at the end, uh, just little things like that you pick up about Khal Drogo that, that you know, kind of makes him let his guard down to us a little bit that I think are really cool. That's well said, Matt. I, I, think, I think maybe a, a little bit, too, it was also a, let's see what you do with this. Mm-hmm. I don't know you. I'm going to give you this. I hope that you can, you know, seize it and, and be free and, and, and experience life with me and, and be the kind of partner that, that I really want. Can you? Let's see. Show me what, show me what you do with this powerful, you know, brilliant animal, right? Awesome. Love it. And she just, to her credit, you know, you know, summoning the dragon within, she just owns it, right? And... And in, in doing so, not only maybe, you know, makes him smile, you know, that, that she's given him, she's, that he's given her the wind and she knows that and gets it and accepts it and understands it, makes him smile. She has won over 40,000 people in the matter of 15 seconds. They this are is our queen. They, they are hers from that moment. The moment she yeah. jumps over that fire and, what a, you know, great imagery that is, they're her. They're in her back pocket. They love her from that moment on. This is our queen. She is awesome. Great point. Yeah. I would maybe be careful not to credit Cal Drogo with giving her too much agency because I think he still probably considers her property, <laughs> but at least he's treating that property well, which again is all we can ask for in this situation. Yeah. It's a, it's a product of his upbringing. Like you said so well. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, we made it through talking about the sex scene. Whew. Are you feeling pretty titillated right now, Brooke? You didn't no, giggle. just nervous. You didn't giggle once. <laughs> That's not what I was worried about. <laughs> no, I'm really curious. We did pretty good. We did do good. It's like talking about sex with my brothers. It's only funny on the like the highest, most surface level. Like, like, oh, you got that girl's phone number? Great. I don't want to know anything else. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm well, honored uh, that you thought of, you compared us to your brothers. Aw. Oh, gosh. Yeah, that's, that's, that's taking it to a whole new level. I feel. All right, feel Thompson. All, all right, inside. Thacker. Just take it easy. Take right. it easy. Let's keep going. Ooh, the last names. Golden <laughs> middle formal. name us. We better not give her those. Uh, I would die for you. So uh, should we talk about the gifts a little bit? <laughs> yeah, uh, if if you want to, yeah. Well, I, I just think, 
the gifts are the gifts are interesting because um, I, I put this in the notes uh, there that a gift often says more about the giver than it does about the person that's that's opening it or, or that's receiving it, and I think it's interesting who's giving her what. The three slaves that are you know given to her from from her brother, you know, are taught are, are meant to teach her how to speak Dothraki, how to be a better lover, and what how to ride a horse. I think. Uh, yes. The first two were right. I think the third was is correct too. So they're all. The point is, they're all three things. Yes. Yes, that are, they are. That are meant to. That are just meant to slide her into that culture to make her husband happy, so he gets what she want, what he wants. You better learn these three things because if you don't, I might not get what I need. These are the three things I think you need to know. So here's your slaves to get that. Right. They're very. They kind of put her in a in a very specific role. The dragon's eggs. I don't know what that says, uh, you know, from Illyrio. Other than it, it seems uh, it seems like a surfacey gift. They're pretty, but they don't do anything, right? They are incredibly valuable, though. They are valuable. They're va- they're valuable to someone that owns a manse. Yeah, I I see them as kind of a. I'm going to give you this really valuable gift so that when you go back over to Westeros, you remember who I am. Yeah, it's a status gift for sure. Just it's a kinda... status it's a status gift, but it doesn't have any use in her life. It doesn't. There's no in... practical use. It's just nice looking eggs. Yeah. Yeah. No one can argue though that Illyrio is not a good gift giver. I mean, that's a talent few are born with. It was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Few, um, few I... are born with it, but Jorah maybe is is one of the few. Um, yeah, also great gifts. Yeah. The history books. That, you know, if, if he sees, you know, we talked a little bit about who, who sees what in Danny, right? She sees herself as this nervous, you know, insecure person. But Jorah, after meeting her and, and uh, Viserys, immediately pledges his sword uh, from the last chapter uh, with Danny. And maybe he sees something, you know, in Danny that's like, she, she, she has potential. She, she needs to know this history stuff. He could have just kept them and tried to do something else. But I think maybe he sees something in her that, that she maybe wants knowledge, right? Right. And that's Especially, interesting. That's, that's poignant after what Tyrion has already told us about books and learning and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we've already, we've already beaten, uh, beaten the horse to death that uh, Drogo gave her, so we can move on from that one. <laughs> hey um, Or uh, No puns. Uh, Thank you. I, I, I don't mean to dumb it down, but... You know, Jorah also just didn't have a lot to give. Could that be the reason he gave her the books? Could be. I, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, well, I he says that. Well, yeah, he, obviously. He doesn't he, have a lot of earthly possessions to begin with, nonetheless, ones that would befit a queen. But I thought he did the best with what he had. It was a very thoughtful gift. Everybody else's gifts were status symbols, but sure. his were very was was a very personalized gift for Danny shows that he probably has some affection for her already. Well, he knows that she hasn't been to this home. They're trying to win. Mm-hmm. She knows nothing about it. She's never seen it, you know, like and her only teaching on it has come from a brother who's quite bitter and angry and weird. Yep. All right. Um, I think we're good with Danny. Yeah, let's move on. Uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm really excited to talk about this next one. So uh, Edard's chapter. Yes. All right. Well, let's talk about it. Uh, so, uh, this chapter opens with Ned being woken up. Uh, Bob Triple B, uh, Robert Baratheon, 
The king wants to go for a ride to discuss matters of state. He doesn't want to do it in camp because there are ears everywhere in camp. So they, they ride and get away from the main party. As they get away from the main party, Robert waxes philosophic about being free again and out in the open air and wanting to leave the camp behind and, you know, go go off and just be men again together, which is, um, you know, kind of a whimsical thing, but also I think a very a, a very deep look into his character as well, you know, as to the kind of man he really wants to be and the, the kind of things he enjoys and values. Leave the whole group behind and, and just go out as two men on the road, you know, which is kind of, it, it kind of shows us the kind of things that, that he values as a man and, and the things that he enjoys doing. You know, he doesn't like being cooped up in matters of state. He wants to be out there doing doing things in, in the sun and hunting and, and that kind of stuff with friends. But he but but he also brings up John's John's mother. He you know, either he's trying to you know the thing when bros get together and they're like, Oh, remember that chick you got her number or you know, whatever, they're trying to brag, you know. <laughs> Brooks brothers. Yeah, Brooks Brothers, <laughs> right. They bring her into the game sometimes. Uh, so they're kind of, he's kind of doing that, but Ned doesn't really play along, right? <laughs> he's like, uh, I don't really have any stories I want to tell about that. But he does, but Ned does give him the name of John's mother, Willow, which as far as we know, he's never told Catelyn that. So he's, he's divulging something here to, to Robert that Robert either already knew and forgot or they didn't know before and that he hasn't told Catelyn. So that's interesting. We get her name. We don't get any other details about her, which is extremely frustrating, but, um, we get her name. Oh, I think I think we get that she had large breasts. I think Robert mentions that. Um, <laughs> other than that, we know nothing else. So, but the ma- the main reason they've gone out on this ride is that uh, the Triple B has received a letter from Varys through Jorah uh, Mormont, indicating that the wedding that we just read about in Danny's chapter has taken place. And dun dun dun. Dun dun dun. So they're so Danny's being informed on by by Jorah Mormont. Uh, basically, is what you're led to believe here. And so they go into this whole history about uh, about how about how Robert took the throne, and um, you know they 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 stormed they after defeating Rhaegar in battle they stormed King's Landing um, they murdered anyone in the royal family that was still around uh, even young babes um, and this is an old wound between Ned and 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 Triple B they disagree about the way that should have been handled. And this is this is a main source of conflict between these two best friends. Is the way that 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 whole that whole thing went down. Um, you kind of learn that Triple B fears the Dothraki and fears the Targ sympathizers, uh, Targaryen sympathizers in within Westeros. The, you know that he worries every day about about you know if this is going to come back to bite him that those kids are still out there that he didn't get to being Viserys and Daenerys. Um, he also says that he's named Jamie Lannister Warden of the East, and Ned freaks out about that. He doesn't trust Jamie. He doesn't like half the armies being controlled by Lannisters because the uh, Warden of the West would be uh, Tywin, Jamie's father. The Warden of the East then would be Jamie, and that's basically half of the the continent's armies. Um, so that makes him uh, makes him scared. And Bob's really not getting why. You know, Triple B's like, why is this bothering you so much? What's the deal? And and Ned said he tells him the true story of what he saw when he came to King's Landing, and that being that uh, when he got into the uh, to the throne room, he marched in, and the Lannisters were everywhere, and Jamie himself was sitting on the iron th- the iron throne, and uh, that that he paused there for a while, and they just stared at each other, and uh, mm-hmm. eventually he got up, and and Triple B just laughs. Just throws his head back and laughs and thinks it's hilarious, uh, and isn't worried about it, um, and then rides off. 
And the last thing that we get really is Ned just realizing that he may not be able to reach Robert like he used to could, that uh, may be beyond <laughs> his reach. So that's uh, that's the chapter summary. So let's 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 dive in. Um, so first first thing that's maybe interesting is the Camp Full of Ears stuff. Um, basically, it, that's that statement is a, a nice summary of some of the things he's saying later about he doesn't trust his kingdom. He doesn't think people want him there. He doesn't. He believes that there's a lot of people working actively to get him out, um, and he's worried about it. And he's he's concerned, uh, kind of at all times. And I don't know. I wanted to ask you guys: do you, do you think is that the impression you get from him that he cares a great deal about this? I think I don't know that he cares so much. It just it's just that it gets in the way. It's almost like this isn't what I signed up for when I when I was going to be king. I just thought being a king just meant I got to wear the crown. I got to have as many women as I wanted. I got to drink as much as I wanted and just live a life of luxury. And it's almost like this is just kind of annoying. And he's like, this isn't what I signed up for, man. This just sucks. Yeah, uh, Roberts, keep going. Sorry. No, I'm I'm done. I was. I was naturally transitioning to you. <laughs> God, wow. we're slick. Uh, yeah, he's all about momentum. And you kind of get that from when they're reminiscing about days of old when they were campaigning for the throne. He's all about um, uh, the the chase almost. And now that mm. he has the throne and the kingdom, it is crappy. Yeah. Yeah. It also notes somewhere uh, in there that I don't remember, I don't know if he explicitly says it, but he didn't want to be king. What he wanted was revenge and Lyanna. <laughs> and and what he ended up getting mm. is a crown, right? And he wasn't really prepared for that. I mean, I think, you know, they planned for it right before they revolted. Like, they had to have their plan. And Bob was picked, Trouble was picked because the Baratheon family does have a link to the Targaryen. So there is there is technically some blood relation in there. Uh, Robert Baratheon's grandmother was a sister to to the king, to a former king, I believe it was Aerys uh, Aegon the Fifth. Um, yeah, she was a Targaryen. Yeah, she was a Targaryen, and she married into the Baratheon family, uh, gave birth to Stephen Baratheon, who's Robert's father. So it's not that far of a bloodline removal, really. Um, so he's the best blood candidate to be king, but he doesn't really make a very good one, and I don't think he really even wanted it. Knowing Bobby B, I don't know that he event necessarily didn't want it. I I, I kind of get the impression that it's like, well, uh, they're sitting around talking about how this revolt's going to go, and it's like, well, who's going to be king then? Well, Robert's probably the closest. I don't imagine Robert being the type to be like, no, 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 I don't want it. Yeah, I, I can picture him being like, okay, yeah, totally, yeah. I'll do it. <laughs> um, I, I don't know if that conversation happened before or after the official revolt though. Um, that's interesting to think about. We often, we, they call it Robert's rebellion, right? And, and so you think of Robert as kind of the beginner of it, but really, if you look at it, it was John Aaron that started the whole thing, yes. at least on the outside, because he's the one that officially said to Ares, no, I'm not going to give up Edard and Robert. And that started the whole rebellion. And then of course, Robert became the figurehead, uh, it's interesting to think about John Aaron's mm. role in all this and how he kind of stepped back and, and let Robert be the figurehead and, and Robert stepped into that role very naturally. It was just the king part that 
the after the fighting part that didn't seem to suit him very well and did seem to suit John Aaron well as, as you know, he did about as good a job as you can do being the hand of the King, like Robert Baratheon. Yeah. Thankless job. Robert might not be a good King, but he was really good at revenge. Something that really stuck with me was that he had no remorse over the Lannisters killing Rhaegar's. Uh, so, um, the Mad King Ares' son, um, his wife, and two children. Um, and yeah, it gets described really, really... Graphically. Uh, graphically, yeah. Even uh, killing a, a little baby. And uh, Robert's like, good. No more Targaryens. Yeah. Get yeah. him out of here. He um, just calls them dragons, right? He, dragon he tries spawn. to dehumanize them. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And is all for sending an assassin t- for uh, Danny now that uh, she's poised to birth some more of them. In earlier chapters, when we heard Viserys muttering about assassins coming after them, we kind of chalked it up to paranoia, but it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> right. Send a knife and a bold man to wield it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's. It's true. It's too interest. It's interesting too that um, you know a lot of a lot of focus is put on the Kingslayer and that nickname, and you know Jamie killed the king, and well, yeah, but they did worse than that. They killed women and children on this family, right? And yeah. you know, I, I mentioned in the summary that this is a major sticking point for for Robert and and Ned and their friendship. They got in a huge fight over this and how it was done and how the reaction was that only got better, that they only were able to work through uh, as they together mourned Lyanna's death. And, you know, that's, you, you know, you know that you have those conflicts in your life with friends sometimes where you kind of, it's a big deal, but you kind of just agree to get past it and bury it for a while. But it's always kind of there in the back of your mind. And mm-hmm. you both just kind of hope it won't come back up again and you won't have to face it head on. That's what this is. But there's, you know, this letter is forcing them to take it head on again. They're, they have to deal with it again. They can't mm. bury it. Agreed. Yes, I know what that's like. Got a couple of <laughs> uh, <laughs> buried time bombs. Uh-oh. Just waiting. Scattered about my relationships. <laughs> that's really, oh. that's really apt. Uh, Next time like I'm it. in Calgary, Brooke. <laughs> you guys are going to, you guys are just going to work it out. I'm going to use these stories. <laughs> uh, All right. Uh, so uh, one of the things, too, that just a specific morality question. So, um, you know, the way Robert looks at it is like, yeah, you know, somebody had to do this. Somebody had to kill these kids. Somebody had to or somebody had to kill the king. We had to take care of the kids. This is the nature of war. You know, and, and I think I think that line, I think Robert's way over that line with the kids. But is he right about the king? You know, is it okay to kill a king that's crazy and doing if you're, all sorts of wrong? Yeah, especially if you're the a guy that's sworn to protect him, right? Yeah. That adds another wrinkle to it. Right. So what's worse, allowing this crazy, insane king who was, gonna, who was committing and was going to continue con- committing all sorts of atrocities on different levels, uh, allow him to live just because you're sworn to protect him? Or is it worse to go against the value made and kill one man who would have killed maybe many? Well, what do you think? 
on that morality question. I'm totally down with Jamie knifing King Aries right in the back. I think I am too. I question the timing. The timing seems all a little too convenient. I really like Ned's point in that, yeah, it had to happen, but not by someone uh, sworn to protect the king. Yeah, let somebody else do it. Yeah, so I think at that point, ethically, even Ned would have done it. And he's like... Yeah, he could have whipped out ice. Top, top yeah. of the moral pyramid. Although and he would have... Do they, do they hmm? go into the timing in this chapter? Was it a previous chapter we read? Like, wasn't... I think Ares was just giving an order specifically to his master of master of keeper of the flames. The, I can't remember the titles. Oh. Uh, the guy that keeps that had all the, the horde of fire to go light the town on fire. Right? Exactly. So and that timing was kind of of the essence for Jamie, wasn't it? I think that it was exactly that, that Jamie tried, you know, to do what he could to, uh, I don't know, maybe honor his vows. I don't know if he was trying that hard, but it seemed like he, he, honored them to the bitter end until he realized this guy's going to do something terrible. <laughs> yeah. Well, we t we, I want to move on from editor in a second here, but um, yeah. I want to touch really quickly on something about naming Jamie warden of the East. Um, I don't understand how that works because the King's guard take all these vows similar to the, the night's watch. Um, you know, that they, they can't do certain things. They can't hold land anymore. They can't inherit things. They can't, uh, get married. They can't do all these sorts of things similar to the Night's Watch. Can 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 Jamie be the Warden of the East and a member of the King's Guard? I don't see why not. Uh, after you posed that in the notes, I went and looked into it a little bit, and and uh, it just reinforced that the title of Warden is a, is purely a military title. Mm. Um, it doesn't have anything to do with, you know, how many lands you own or what family you're from or anything. It is purely a military title that basically makes you kind of the supreme commander of all of the armies in that region of which you're the, the warden. And it just just to eliminate, you know, confusion, you know, if an invasion does happen of who's going to lead who, you already know the warden's going to lead everyone in the region. Um, in, in times of peace, it's kind of just kind of a status or honorary title. But uh, so I don't see why Jamie couldn't do it just because it's another military title. But well, it's, uh, primarily is awfully because he's convenient. not part of the military. Mm. So 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 it's it's a big stretch to me to allow the King's guess, Guard to go command an army when their job is to protect the king. Right. In the sense that like the Secret Service isn't part of the military. Correct. Yeah. 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 I don't know. Anyway, I thought it was interesting. I, I'm, I was reading it. I'm just like, what is he talking about? Yeah. Can they even do that? <laughs> and I, I get the feeling that this is really early on in the series, and maybe he didn't think through all the ramifications. Or yeah. like, how... No, no, I'm not spoiling. I'm just saying anybody knows there's five huge books in this series, and uh, I don't think George knew everything that could happen uh -huh. and every role that there was to play in every, like, that's what I, I don't believe at. he did. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't worried about spoilers. I was saying, yeah, that's my point. Oh, yeah. I thought I you were mean, hissing I think at me again. Up. I think, I think, he was, <laughs> I think he didn't think through it. 
I could also trace it back to just the influence the Lannisters have over Robert and going back to our previous conversation. If he doesn't want to be troubled by this stuff, he just wants to enjoy the finer living of that comes along with being a king. And so if it'll shut Cersei yes. up for five minutes, fine, whatever. <laughs> you know, we've got peace in the land. We're not going to war anyways as far as he's concerned. Let freaking Jamie be the friggin' warden of the East. I don't care as long as you'll shut up and get off my case. Yeah. <laughs> that's how their relationship oh, is i think that's a huge part of it i agree with you yeah plus in equivalent histories uh in, in like our times it was up to the the military leaders to finance these armies too and the lannisters have money right so his choices are probably limited by who can weaponize and mm. feed all of the armies of the east good point or west huh? It's an interesting point. That's something that George doesn't ever really go yeah, into. Is that better is... than just shutting up his wife? <laughs> no, but I like it. <laughs> That's something that George doesn't ever really go into, is, and I'm glad he doesn't, just to be clear, but the logistics of all of this stuff, how armies get from here to there and how long it takes and what provisions and how, the, you know, how they're all the financing. Like, I'm glad he stays out of it, but it's something that is missing. Yeah, but then he just like kind of like... <laughs> rattles off these extremes like a hundred thousand horse warriors yes storming in out of town eating everything in sight they would have to literally eat everything in sight including the soil and the ground yes like it's like <laughs> i don't think yeah. he knows what it takes to feed an army yeah yeah i get that sense too sometimes there 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 are many we won't get into it but there are many instances specifically in the night's watch where they're talking about feeding the whole group and my I was left scratching my brain a lot of times. Anyway, oh. we'll get to that in those chapters. Okay. Some some number of months down the line from now. Yeah, you could also credit him with giving those characters who are describing these instances a sense of exaggeration too. It could not be him, it could be the characters. True. Oh, what a what a nice tool for an author to wield. I know, right? <laughs> that wasn't my mistake. The character doesn't know. Brilliant. All right. Uh, all right, let's move on to Tyrion. Matt, you want to lay it down for us? Yeah, let's do it. So Tyrion, in this chapter, it wants to see the wall before he goes back down to the south. Uh, he wants to see this famous wall up in the north. So he uh, hitches a ride with Benjen's entourage. Benjen's going back up to continue his post uh, with the Night's Watch. He's also taken along John, of course, who's one of the Night's Watch's newest recruits. On the way, they meet up with uh, a Night's Watch recruiter named Yorin, whose whole job it is to go and find new recruits for the Watch. And this time he's found two boys uh, who were convicted as being rapers. And so instead of, as George points out, castration, they chose to go to the Wall. And so this motley little crew, fellowship, if you will, is heading up north, and it's very cold, and the north is very, very big, bigger than Tyrion had ever imagined, and uh, we get some insight more into Tyrion and Jon, I wouldn't say not so much, well, a little bit of their personalities individually, but I think the real gems come from their interactions with each other which is a lot of fun. We also get a little bit more history as to the dragons of Westeros. Well, dragons of this world, not just Westeros. 
and uh, a little more insight into things like the wolves and and some other things. This is more of a a chapter that doesn't move the story as l- along quite as much, and I think that might be kind of a theme for this week. Is we got some chapters that were more informational in nature rather than really driving the story forward plot wise. Uh, but I love those, and and a lot of times those chapters are the ones that have the most gold to mine from them. Um, but that's pretty much that chapter is just them walking and talking. A very Lord of the Ringsy type chapter. Uh, let's dive into it a little bit. Um, do you well, think? Oh, go ahead, Scott. No, I was just going to start with my my size of the North thing. Just yes, to please. Put things into perspective. Um, so I loved that, always, by the way. Okay, yeah. So people are always talking about how big the North is, and uh, and how cold it is too. But but mainly just how expansive it is. Uh, one of the characters at some point in this group of chapters said that it's. I think it was Robert said that the North is as big as, as the rest of Westeros put together and it's not, but it's close. So I, I just went and did some, some just general measuring it. This is not scientific necessarily. Uh, but I found it referenced that, uh, from top to bottom, including lands beyond the wall, Westeros is about 3000 miles, uh, long. And so I just, you know, did some crude measurements, uh, and it looks like the North is somewhere between 900 and 1100 miles north to south from the wall down to the neck. Uh, if you suck in Sus Mapas, get out your maps and uh, take a look from the from the wall down to what the, the place called the neck, that's about from anywhere from 900 to 1100 miles in my estimation. And it's probably around 800 to to 1000 miles uh, east to west um, from its westernmost point to its easternmost point. So to put that into context really quickly, that's like um, for driving from LA to Portland or from New York to Jacksonville, Florida, or for those Canadians from Vancouver to Saskatoon. Brooke, does anyone ever go to Saskatoon? As it so happens, I was born there. What? Yes, they do. <laughs> blind luck. <laughs> Total blind have, luck. That couldn't have gone more perfectly. It's actually a beautiful city. You'd never believe it, but I uh, it is. I'll have to go there. <laughs> no, you don't have to. Oh. But it is nice. All right. <laughs> it's certainly not a destination. Um, but thank you very much for putting this into a perspective I can understand. You're talking about miles, and I just like kind of tuned out. But yeah. Vancouver to Saskatoon, <laughs> that is relatable. I got it. And She's it's like Portland. I've never even heard of Portland. <laughs> What's Jacksonville? Actually, I don't know what Jackson is. That Florida? Yes, Jacksonville. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yep. Very good. Okay. So anyway, I just wanted to put that in context for people so they know how big a space we're really talking about. Yeah, you kind of just get the idea that, you know, you know that the king's entourage traveled for so long to get to Winterfell that you kind of think that the wall's just probably up the road. Yeah. And it's not. It's not. <laughs> they still have quite the walk. So anyway, you were about to jump into something, Matt. Go ahead. Uh, I want to talk for a little bit about Tyrion and Jon's relationship. They've had two interactions that we've seen so far and they're very interesting they're very similar characters and they're very different why do you guys think they work so well together or do they work well together so to me Tyrion is going to be brutally honest to anybody um it doesn't matter who they are uh john is kind of used to being able to just take it from people you know you just got to take it he's a bastard just got to take it and so Tyrion finds in John someone who can actually listen to what he's saying, will take it and take it for what it's worth instead of just being offended or, you know, putting him off or, you know, whatever. 
and 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 use the information that he's giving him as as something valuable. And I think I think too, he sees someone that might actually even look up to him a little bit. John sees that Tyrion has lived, you know, a life of trial, one that John is is living through as well, and is you know kind of I'd say come out on top a little bit, right? He's in a good spot for who he is, and uh, I think Tyrion sees that John is interested in asking him questions about what he thinks and what he knows of the world. And so I think Tyrion likes that. He doesn't have a whole lot of people that view him that way. So I think that's part of it is is just getting a benefit of someone that's interested in you. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that is uh, a lot more uh, seductive reasoning for their relationship than I had in just that Tyrion finds Jon interesting. And when he finds people interesting, I think he's willing to spend mm. some of his cleverness on them. Uh-huh. And uh, that's what we're seeing here. And John isn't clever, is he? Well, he's, he's I, I don't mean smart. he's dumb. I don't mean he's dumb. I mean he's not. He's not witty. He's not. He's not clever. He's. There's a difference between intelligent and clever yes. in some cases, and I would agree with you. He's very literal, right? Right now, he Tyr- is. Tyrion asks him specifically, "Look at me, John. What do you see?" And he says. Are you kidding? I see Tyrion Lannister. Like, what are you getting at? Like, he's, mm. he's not, you know, he's not, he's not looking for anything witty or clever. He's just like, he sees things in black and white kind of as they are, right? He is Eddard Stark's son and <laughs> grew up with him. And I, so I think it's a, a, that's kind of his his dad in him. Um, I, I There's a lot we could talk about, but we're starting to run short on time. And, and this Catelyn chapter coming up is a really good one. Uh, but the maybe the one other point that I just wanted to touch on is I love, 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 probably one of the, on a higher level, things that has captivated me most about this series is how George R. R. Martin weaves these real-life type situations, things that you can apply and we apply on in these podcasts to modern-day situations. He takes these very real situations and he weaves in freaking... Uh, others and and dragons and these fantastical elements that make the story even that much more cool. And I I've never uh, seen something like that, at least to this degree. And and I love uh, how we're getting into some dragon lore and learning a little bit more about those. Uh, it makes the Danny chapters more intriguing. Learning about the role that dragons played. So say we all. So say we all. Somebody once described the this series to me as uh, the West Wing meets fantasy, <laughs> which is like it's it's all about politics and you know it's families instead of political parties or whatever. But the, you know the theme applies. Um, you know it's, it's all about politics and gaining the upper hand and you know all these machinations that are going on behind the scenes and everything. But then there's dragons too, and so it just kind of it's just kind of cool to to weave those worlds together, like you said, Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of good stuff in this chapter. Is there anything else you guys want to cover? Or should we get on to, to cat? Yeah, I've done a poor job policing the time again. We should probably get on to cat. Let's do it. All right. Uh, I'll try to bust through this summary here. Cause there's lots of good stuff to talk about. So Catelyn is still being a super dud about Bran and hasn't left his bedside. Um, Maester Lewin tries to distract her by taking some of the like Winterfell business, 
up to her, but she declares that uh, she doesn't care who becomes the next horse master or whatever. She would gladly kill all the horses in Winterfell if it brought Bran back, which made me go, <gasps> that, uh, I guess is a, an accurate representation of just how far she sunk in her grief. Mm-hmm. So uh, Rob comes in during this tirade and is like, guys, I got this. And Catelyn realizes that he's all grown up and ends up breaking down even further in front of him, admitting that she's afraid to sleep in case Bran dies, obviously suffering really badly from the ill effects of sleep deprivation. So while all this is happening, someone lights the library tower on fire across the campus of Winterfell, if you will. So Rob and all the guards outside of Bran's room go running and, uh, that's when, bam, a smelly, scruffy-looking assassin shows up with a knife. Who's scruffy-looking? Questioning why Catelyn is in the room at all. Obviously there to kill Bran in his sleep. So the dude tries to take out Catelyn first. Um, again, not sure why she's there, but she has to go too. And she stops him from slitting her throat with her bare hands on the blade of the knife that he's using. Hardcore! So hardcore, man. Fortunately, Bran's wolf bursts into the room and eats the guy's throat out. Uh, So everyone comes running back up to discover Catelyn just losing it, laughing hysterically. Blood everywhere. Bran's wolf is all tucked up in bed with Bran. Catelyn, uh, after losing it, ends up sleeping for four days loses the sleep deprivation crazy kind of gets back to her old self and deduces that someone has to go to King's Landing to prove that the Lannisters are behind all these attempts on Bran's life. And also that that person has to be her because she's going to be the most convincing to get right into it. My favorite part was that Bran's wolf was never allowed to sleep with him in his room the whole entire time he's been sick somehow makes it up into the tower just in time to stop this assassin, then ends up licking all of the blood off of Catelyn's cut fingers before sleeping, hopping up on the bed and laying down to sleep beside Bran as if protecting him. Like this wolf is actually communicating with Catelyn, telling her that, hey, I will take care of you and I will take care of Bran. It's okay to go sleep. Things are going to be okay, which I just, I love this wolf. Yeah. Oh, Brooke. <laughs> that oh, really that stuck cool. with me. I, I, I had a I little, I had a little tear. Um, so um, I love that uh, George R. R. Martin gives so much personality and also like he makes the wolves characters in the book. Yeah. I, it's interesting about the wolves because Standard fantasy fair would tell you that these wolves are going to have some sort of superpowers or, you know, super insight or, or some, you know, some, something. And, you know, we're 15 chapters into this book or whatever, and we haven't seen a lot special from the, from the wolves. Like, they're cool. You're like, oh, I wish I was a kid with a cool wolf, you know, but, but they haven't done anything really special yet. And, you know, you're wondering whether like, oh, maybe they're just going to be pets or is there, you know, something special about them or what? And this is the first inkling we get that maybe these things have something going on. This and the singing, right? They're kind of, they're singing in chorus together and, um, you know, that, that kind of maybe means something, something special, but, uh, it's a, 
it's an exciting little nugget of maybe these wolves have something special. Mm-hmm. Uh, so another, go oh, keep going. No, no I, was, go I was going to move on to something else. Go ahead. I was going to say another interesting part in this chapter is how, again, the Lannisters come under suspicion for uh, all these assassination attempts uh, against Bran and uh, that. Catelyn is so convinced that she would actually leave Bran. He's still completely unconscious and go all the way down to King's Landing to prove it, to take this knife and find its owner. It's like, what? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. They're really stuck on it. Damn. Yeah. I, I hated that decision. I thought she should have stayed. Mm-hmm. Sad. But, do you think yeah. she should have stayed? Well, I think someone should go. Uh, it seems, it seems like a, I, I guess I'll say first of all that <laughs> it, it seems awfully convenient that, that they just kind of come to this conclusion, right? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's the Lannisters. Like, I remember he didn't go hunting and so it's them. Like, wait, what? <laughs> it seems like a bit of a jump. So, so I think that means somebody does have to go, go figure it out, but it also seems like a jump that it has to be her. Well, like, why cat? Yeah, there's no one there's no one else you can trust with this? Yeah. Like you got a whole town full of people loyal to you that would raise much less so, suspicion than you yeah. going. It's, yeah, why it's, her? It, it seems they, like they, a stretch. They made all these good points about why cat should stay earlier in the in the book. Yeah. And why does she have to go? And and then she's also taken with her another one of Winterfell's greatest resources, with it, which is uh, Roderick Cassell, yeah. who's 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 a very influential figure for in all of Winterfell and for the kids. They're taking two of the most valuable people in Winterfell to essentially go be messengers. I I didn't get it. I didn't like it. This just struck me. Do you think she's doing it to get away from Bran because she knows she's incapacitated when she's around? Well, possibly. Or did she uh, move past that with the dagger through the through the hand? The dagger through the hand seemed to be a, a wake up moment for her, um, yeah. and we call it that, even though she went to sleep for four days after. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she, it, it was a defining moment, and maybe there was something to it that she suddenly realized what we were talking about earlier that I got to get my head back in the game. Yep. Um, but part of getting her head back in the game is just being a mom too. Yeah. Anything else on this chapter? I have one more thing. Go for, Go for it. it. Well, I just it's a it's a quick writing thing. I don't know why, but I'm zoned in on this on on some of these specific lines uh from George uh in the, in this segment, but George has this way and you'll see it throughout the series. He has this way of of just completely turning a scene on its ear in a single sentence and doing it in a way that like you have to read it again to know what what you just read because it's so unexpected. And the line was uh when she turned away from the window, the man was in the room with her. And it's like, boom, holy shit, what's going to happen now? Mm-hmm. We, we it's were one just of those worried about a fire, and then now you're like, whoa. And, and it's just this casual one line, and you're like, wait, what's something just changed, right? And he does this throughout the series, and it's it so makes my day when it happens. I love it. Mm-hmm. They're like, what? Moments where you have to go back and read the sentence again like three times. Yes. To make sure you understood what happened. Yes. Yeah. And uh, Matt, I just want to note one more thing. In Brooke's summary, she used the term scruffy looking. And if we can get a Han Solo soundbite integrated somehow, that would be super special. <laughs> scruffy looking? <laughs> Who's scruffy looking? Yeah. So 
and we're nerds. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wear it like a badge, Scott. <laughs> Wear it like a badge. Uh, all right. So um, just to recap for next week, for uh, or for next episode, for those of you who are going to be dropping off now, uh, just remember that for our next episode here in a couple weeks, we are going to be reading Sansa's first chapter. So our first introduction to Sansa's POV, uh, Eddard's third, Bran's third, Catelyn's fourth, and John third. John's third. So the next five chapters we'll be reading and talking about uh, next time. The reading schedule is up on the Tumblr site, devilsfingers.com. So you can find that there if you need to look and see also when that's going to be posted and everything. Thank you, Matt. Davos after dark time. Davos after dark. Davos after dark. <laughs> <laughs> what do you guys want to go through? Uh, I want to talk about uh, Must Be a Stark in Winterfell, but there's a lot of good stuff in here. What, what do you guys want to talk about? I'm cool with talking about that. I also, mm-hmm. going back to our, we have to always bring up R plus L equals J in uh, every Davos after dark now. I would love to talk about the Promise Me Ned paragraph. Yeah. What do you want to start with? Well, let's start with the Stark and Winterfell thing because it might be just quick. Yeah, So let's do it. So is this just a line? Is this just like a catchphrase, like a family catchphrase that's persisted throughout the years, kind of like as a good campaign slogan, like, remember, boys, you always need a Stark in Winterfell so that no one ever tries to over- <laughs> overthrow them? Or is this something, is it something more? Is it like uh, some sort of mystical, magical tie-in to, to being of the first men? You know what does it what does it really mean? Because I'll remind you, there is no Stark in Winterfell right now. Uh, by right now, I mean uh, at this where, point in the, at in this the point uh, at the end of uh, Dance Dragons. Right, mm-hmm. that's a good point. And uh, there is technically no Winterfell at Burned. Yeah, I mean, the well, yeah. But no, I hear what you're saying. I think it. I think it actually is a throwback to when uh, the North was its own kingdom. And so there had to be a Stark king. I think that's how, how it's being fed to us. But if you're asking, asking for like a more uh, mystical tie between that bloodline and the health of the region, I, I could see it because right now they are suffering and winter yeah. is here. The North is bleeding, right? And it all correlates yeah. with there being no Stark in Winterfell. Yeah. I just, so last week I brought up the, uh, or maybe it was the first week, I don't remember. I brought up the history thing where it was like 8,000 years ago and people don't remember and things like that, but they still kind of, they wouldn't remember the others or whatever. Um, but they still, there's still this kind of thing in their brain that keeps them coming back to it. Like maybe they're there, maybe they're there, maybe they're there. And I, I wonder if this Stark and Winterfell thing is the same, is a similar thing. It's like, it's, it's this easy to remember phrase that like has been programmed into generation after generation so that it always happens in order mm-hmm. to actually protect from something bad happening. And I, I want to think that there's some, I, I want to think, cause I think it would be cool that there is some sort of mystical tie to there being yeah. a, a genetic Stark in Winterfell and the others taking hold in the world. That's a, you know, and that got me thinking about like brand the builder uh, from back in the age of heroes, all those thousands of years ago, um, he was a Stark, and he was the one that built the wall that uh, keeps the others at bay, and that's why they built the wall was to keep the others at bay. Yep. And so it, it 
could go back to that. And of course, we know that the wall apparently has mystical um, features to it as well. So, yeah, there could definitely be some sort of correlation there. Well, we can leave it at that. Yeah, Just let it be know. known that I want there to be something special about that phrase. All right, you want to go into uh, into everyone's favorite topic? John's parentage. <laughs> we assume it's not Willa. Even if um, it's just a little bit. Yeah, this is, and you guys, I don't know whose notes this belongs to, but the fact that Ned is so anxious to keep John's parentage secret from Robert is because if Robert knew he was a Targaryen, he'd want to kill John. I never thought of that. Yeah. Who thought of that? Um, I think it was in my notes. It was in my uh, notes. Yeah, I'd read that online before. It, it was... Yeah, I was I was just thinking about it as I read it, how he talked, you know, how Robert was comparing these little babies to dragons. And if he's willing to let a little two-year-old girl and an infant die, or three years old, however old she was, he's not going to even blink to kill a bastard preteen. Yeah, especially so, in the moment. Yeah. It's Lyanna's. That guy raped Lyanna and forced this being into the world. No. Yeah, you know, like, I just think George is just spoon feeding it to us at this point. Uh, <laughs> it's it's seriously a two sentence paragraph. You avenged Liana at the Trident, and said, halting beside the king. In the very next sentence, promise me, Ned. She whispered, "Spoon feeding us, man. You know you're talking about him killing Rhaegar at the Trident, and then you bring up promise me, Ned." Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it it, may, it almost seems too obvious when you... Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not something I picked up when I read it, but it seems so obvious. Yeah, going back, it's it's there. Yeah. But here's the thing. George has no problem backtracking on us. Like, look at the deaths of, like, Brienne, Sandor, um, Jamie. In future books, they all die air quotes again and then miraculously come back so if he's willing to like jerk us around to that degree with point of view character deaths i think he's willing to backtrack on what he spoon fed us now mm. or pardon me in the game of thrones as to um you know what the ultimate ending of the book is going to be, or of the series. Brooke, why are you counteracting your level, your most loved point? Um, I, I, no, I'm not counting after. I'm just, I'm just, I'm fearful that it, that it won't actually come true. <laughs> You're trying um, to not get I, your hopes up too much. Here, here's the thing. Yeah, I believe that maybe at some point, including while he was writing, you know, the first nine chapters, of the Game of Thrones in this epic series, that was George's intention, but he would have no problem changing it. Mm -hmm. Especially like if when the I... folks at HBO ask him to. Oh, yeah. Get started there. Yeah, he needs to remove himself from like any association with the show. Honestly, like. Which he is starting things. to do. Yeah, yeah he's he, he's not writing any episodes this next season, or he hasn't. Um, oh, which is good. He always wrote at least one episode, 
and he didn't do that with this upcoming season. So I think he is starting to distance himself a little bit, and you can kind of read between the lines of some of his interviews and stuff. He's really starting to say, look, the books are the books, as he is in his accent, the books are the books, and the show is the show. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. That's you almost comforting. Okay. I almost, is, I almost picked up a sense of frustration from him. <laughs> actually. Yeah, I, I think I read that same article you forwarded it to me, Matt, and I agreed. Uh-huh. It seemed like he was he was saying, "Look, it's it's getting more and more difficult to come back to the path of the books with changes the show has taken," right. and it sounded like frustration. But and, anyway, and I, I I'm to the point where I kind of see it. I think the way they want us to see it, which is there are two stories being told in parallel but aren't meant to be compared to each other. Um, I thought he made a really good point at this last Comic-Con. He said, you know, uh, how many kids does so-and-so have in Gone with the Wind, the book? And it's like three or something like that. Well, how many does he have in the show? Six. And he goes, so which one's right? Neither, because both are works of fiction. And he was just kind of making light of the fact that these little things, you know, the book is the book and the show is the show. Enjoy them both for what they are and and whatever. But. And I can do that to an extent. I do that with The Walking Dead. I'm, I've I've read The Walking Dead from issue one to issue, uh, well, I'm a few issues behind now, but issue 120, whatever it is that they're on. Um, and I've watched every second of that show and devoured it uh, season by season. Um and they're very, very different different stories, different characters, same characters that do completely different things. And in that world, I'm fine with it. In this world, maybe I just maybe I love it too much. Yeah, you're attached. <laughs> but, I think I think but, I think Brooke would agree with you. Um the I, only it's hard thing to buy it. Yeah, the only thing that I cannot have is this show spoiling the ending for me before the books do. I will have to stop yes. if that happens. I will have to stop if that happens. They, it's it's known they've that Martin has told the show creators the ending, how the series is supposed to end. They know, and it's very it's a very realistic prospect at this point that the show is going to get there before the books do. Um, oh, damn it! And uh, that's terrifying to me. I'm just I don't glad, even I'm just... want to know that they know because that's going to influence every decision like script and shot decision they make yeah Yeah. well i we went on we've gone on this tangent so i'll just keep going on it but uh matt and i talk a lot about just kind of in side conversations at the office about um about the show and what happened in the last episode because i'm a season behind on the show um but matt is he because i just buy the dvds when they come out and watch them at my own pace and everything but matt's watching devouring them as they come out on HBO. But um, he tells, he, he spoils them for me. He tells me everything that happened in the previous episode. <laughs> and um, at, my urging, at my yeah. urging, it's not like he's uh, coming and shouting them in my ear, all the secrets. Uh, I can't wait to hear it. And he, so he tells me, um, but he's told me some things that change that I'm, I'm just, they're, they're, they 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 mean certain things likely cannot happen in the books that right. are still open questions in the books and yep. i'm tired of learning those things and <laughs> i told my wife who is a fan of the show uh i told her that we're probably going to stop watching it cuz yeah. i don't i don't think i can i don't think i even want to watch the se- the season that just finished based on what matt's told me it's it's good <laughs> she's television she's not allowed to and... watch it either <laughs> <laughs> she's my property book 
Oh, she's a Danny to Scott Strogo. Uh, yeah, it, it's it's worrisome. Um, it's good television, and I think they've done a good job with a lot of things. But you know, for example, they've combined Gendry and Edric Storm's storyline, or so hey, it hey, appears. Hey, don't you, spoil you, things for Brooke. Well, she was not going to watch it, are you, Brooke? Yeah. Um, but but know, that th- might spoil something in the books for her. The worst. Oh, yeah. why did he have to tell them? He didn't have to tell them. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Uh, do you guys want to be done or do you want to talk about quickly who the, who the best wolf is? Um, just if it was quick, I better be about done. Uh, ghost for me. Summer. Because of the psychic connection. Yeah. I think Scott's well I think Ghost I think Ghost has that same connection. John's just uh not not ahead of the curve on realizing it. Scott's favorite is Lady. Or Shaggy Aww. Dog. I think I, I do like Shaggy Dog, but uh I think Nymeria was my favorite, but she got she's so short lived. I'm so she's excited for them man. reuniting. Yeah. She's around oh. somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. When when like cuz cuz she keeps on being alluded to yes. by like like in no consistency by by totally mutually exclusive sources that there is some wild pack of wolves roaming the midlands led by a direwolf and it's definitely Nymeria yes. and I can't wait for yeah Arya to be the one to like, you know, confront her in a field and mm-hmm. then they Well, she has the wolf dreams, right? Yeah. yeah. So it is, it is interesting though. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about in the episode about the, uh, about whether they're special or not. And I do think he's done, he hasn't done a lot about making them special. Lady bites it. Nymeria's gone missing and maybe we'll come back and be special. Um, you know, Grey Wind's done, you know, like in some ways they they almost do seem like he's regressed and made them more just like big wolves. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I won't say that Grey Wolf didn't fulfill his meaningfulness in that, yeah. you know, taking his head and putting it on Rob's body was like the most traumatizing yes. thing for me ever. Yeah. Like throwing the book across the room, traumatizing. Yeah. But I would say that the, the wolves still have a lot of significance. They're still special. They're still magical, but him killing them off is just giving that much more significance to um, the you know, demise of those characters. Yeah. It's, it's making them, it's humanizing them. It's making them characters just like he kills characters or humans. He's going to kill wolves too. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite thing mm-hmm. Greywin did just, uh, we'll wrap this up in a second. My favorite thing Greywin did is just a little side note that Catelyn makes about, how Grey Wind doesn't trust the uh, Rob's wife and their whole family. The Grey mm-hmm. Wind doesn't like them, and so they they lock Grey Wind up because he kind of gets in a tiff with with uh, Rob's wife's family, and it's just like you need to trust your fucking wolf. Yeah, <laughs> she knows. <laughs> like, After he knows. Bran, yeah, like the wolves know things. You need to trust their instincts. And if he says your wife sucks, your wife sucks. You know, stupid Jane. Ugh. So, all right, let's wrap it up. Peace out, everyone. Peace and blessings. Good nights. Good nights. Mm-hmm.